The content of this podcast should not be considered financial or investment advice. All interviews and discussions are opinions only, and the podcast has been created without taking into consideration the listener's objectives, financial situation, or needs. Listeners should consider obtaining independent advice before making any financial decisions. Welcome to another edition of Health Kick. I'm Tim Boren. Today we're talking to a company that's tackling two common eyesight problems that are kind of opposite to each other. We're talking here about childhood myopia, or short-sightedness, and presbyopia, which kind of sounds like a religion really, but uh, in fact it's uh, a loss of near vision for people aged over 40 or, or thereabouts. The company itself is Visioneering Technologies, which is listed here on the ASX, but actually based in Alpharetta, Georgia in the uh, US. Now, Visioneering Solution is a disposable contact lens that tackles both these complaints, but but in a way, the lenses that are currently available don't. So um, I've got with me the company's founder and CEO, Dr. Stephen Snowdy, uh, with me to uh, tell me more. So uh, hi, Steve. Hey, Tim. Happy to be with you. Excellent. Great to talk. Um, to tell me more about your background, you, you've got, I see you've got a doctorate in uh, neurobiology and, and an MBA. So uh, I guess that makes you uh, well qualified to, uh, to, to run an eyesight uh, innovator. Well, I was certainly a professional student there for a while. And uh, it's been said that I have more degrees than a thermometer. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, I, I take offense to that. Uh, you know, Medical device corporations are, are very complex organizations, and so the broader one's learnings, I think the better one understands the organization. And so, yes, I do have a, a doctorate in neuroscience, uh, and uh, while I was getting my PhD in neuroscience, I guess I just didn't have enough to do, uh, so I decided to do an MBA, a master's in business, along with that, with a finance focus. And uh, it actually wasn't boredom. I, you know, I just, I just felt that medical device and pharmaceutical companies are incredibly complex beasts, and yes. the better one can understand the different functional areas, the better one can bridge the language barrier that exists between science and business. Uh, yes. You know, the more effective one could be. Yes. 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 Okay. And so, so what uh, drove you to uh, found? Uh, Visioneering. Oh, there were much uh, smarter people than me involved. I was actually a venture capitalist at the time. Uh, this was back in 2006. And the technical founder, uh, Richard Griffin, he's an optometrist who wasn't satisfied with contact lenses for the over 40 crowd, uh, set out to develop and uh, design a completely different contact lens for that population. And one of the things you have to do as a technical founder often is find ways to communicate to the investor audience, which speaks a different language. And that's one of the things that I really enjoyed doing as a venture capitalist is taking these complex technical stories and boiling them down into a story or a slide deck or a presentation or a business plan that an investor uh, who's not from a technical background could understand. 
And so I was in a program, uh, actually volunteering in a program where technical founders would get together with venture capitalists, and we would just help them develop uh, these stories from a technical sense to a layman sense. And after a couple of years of working on this particular technology, uh, I just became very enamored of it and convinced that this was a real market with a revolutionarily designed product and uh, said, you know, let's just start a company from this thing. And so 2008, in the depth of uh, the global financial crisis in 2008, right around November, uh, we started the company and funded it. And, and what's basically wrong or what's wrong with the existing uh, contact lenses? And uh, your, your, your product is, is, is called Nat- Natural View, and it's, uh, it, it, it's kind of a two-in-one application, isn't it, for... Um, for, for, for both the conditions. It is. And so if we start off with presbyopia, it's, it's funny you called uh, presbyopia sounds like religion. And it's, you know, um, what presby actually means is old. And of course, uh, you know, anything with opia in it relates to vision. And unfortunately, what that translates to is old people's vision. And it it's kind of sad that, you know, this type of vision that we, you know, is technically called old people vision starts at around 40 to 45. And the typical patient for us is a person who has been wearing contact lenses uh, to correct their distance vision. And the way that distance vision becomes compromised, it typically starts uh, even in childhood or adolescence. And so this person's probably been wearing contact lenses since they were uh, 10, 15 years old uh, to correct their distance vision. And unfortunately, you get to the age of 40 or 45, and like a lot of other parts of the body, the eyes start failing. And not only can they not see distance vision, but they lose the ability to see near vision as well. So that patient has two optical needs within the same eye. The, the distance vision doesn't work very well, and they need correction for that. And their near vision fails. So they have trouble seeing their phone. They have trouble reading menus in restaurants, especially in low light. And that takes two different optical corrections uh, to cor- you know, correct for those two different needs. And that is done through multifocal optics. Multifocal just meaning there's more than one optic in a lens. And uh, the lenses that were around when Visioneering was founded, all of the major contact lens companies offered multifocal lenses back then. But the problem with them, uh, getting to the heart of your question, is that these patients will typically, you know, they're coming in to correct two things, distance and near, and they will often only be able to get one of those corrected very well. You know, you can walk out with good distance vision or you can walk out with good near vision with those contact lenses, uh, but very rarely would the patient be able to simultaneously solve both of those with their practitioner. And so there was a compromise. Uh, These patients would have to choose, you know, do I want to see well at distance or do I want to see well at near? And that was the frustration with the founders of the company was this compromise just, you know, it'd be ideal if that compromise didn't exist and you could provide both really good correction of near vision simultaneously uh, while correcting uh, the distance vision as well. And, and that's what we aim for, and we think that's what we achieve with this lens. Yes, and uh, I, I, I gather the technology, uh, it, it, it actually has, has very old roots because it's, it's based on the, the box brownie principle, isn't it? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting that the title of the patent is actually induced aperture 
uh, in optical systems. And what that means is that there's this concept of an aperture. It's actually not even a concept. It's a well-accepted, proven um, science uh, optical effect where if you put a small pinhole into a medium, and by a medium, it can be even a, a business card. So if, you know, if you're really bored at your desk and you take a paper clip and you poke a, a small hole through a business card of somebody who's just left your office and you don't need their business card anymore, and you look through that pinhole, uh, there's a really cool thing that happens in that if you're looking through that little pinhole, you can see something that is only a centimeter or two or three away from your face. And when you remove that business card with a pinhole in it, uh, you'll see that without that, you know, looking through that pinhole, that anything that close is very, very blurry. And this is called an aperture effect. And apertures have been used in photography and cameras for over 100 years. Uh, but what the, our technical founders were able to do is to use that concept of a pinhole and virtualize it. And virtualize it, uh, what I mean by that is our contact lenses uh, get the visual cortex, which is the part of your brain that processes images from your eye, to use an aperture-like effect to create simultaneous focus between things that are uh, very near to your face and things that are far away. Uh, but very importantly, you know what this induced aperture effect does is and this is you know a combination of the optics that are in the lens working with the visual cortex of the brain is uh, give you a very different way of allowing the patient to see things up close and that was the novelty of the design uh, that was the revolutionary part of it uh, and that's why you know we received this patent with this very unique title of induced aperture systems which is the first time that term had ever been used. Mm, okay, great. And of course, you, you, you've packaged, packaged it all up into a product and uh, it's, uh, it's approved. Um, what were about to you selling, uh, uh, Stephen? Uh, at this point, it's around the world. So we started off in the United States uh, with Presbyopia. I, I, maybe if uh, we have time, we can talk about uh, the very exciting area of pediatric myopia. But we started in the United States uh, with the Presbyopia crowd. And then uh, we expanded into Europe. Uh, more recently, we received registrations or clearances in Hong Kong and Singapore, uh, and just most recently received a clearance for Canada. Uh, we're already selling in Europe. Uh, we've actually signed a strategic deal for selling our lenses in Europe, our first strategic deal, which we signed late last year. And we have early sales in Hong Kong and Singapore, uh, those two geographies are extremely important in that 90% of their children are nearsighted, and uh, pediatric nearsightedness is one of the uh, uses of this lens. And uh, we have early sales there, and we're right now seeking partnerships for sales and marketing that we expect to expand those sales once we have a partner. And uh, we haven't quite started in Canada yet. We were just ready to launch in Canada when COVID-19 hit. And okay. uh, that'll delay the Canada launch, but we'll manage that one ourselves out of the United States. So we're we're selling quite a few places at this point. Yeah. Now you mentioned the uh, you mentioned the Singapore and Hong Kong markets, the um, the Asian markets. You, uh, you you mentioned that 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 Asian kids about uh, I think you said like eighty to ninety percent of them um, have myopia, and I think the figure for the US is about a third. Um, 
what sort of accounts for for the difference? Are genetic factors playing out, or or other factors such as uh, lack of exposure to uh, uh, natural sunlight? Yeah, so it's uh, like most things in medicine, it's multifactorial, and it generally starts with genetics. And so, yes, you're correct that there is a genetic component to uh, nearsightedness uh, in children. The larger contributors that have emerged um, as causes for nearsightedness in children, though, are mostly cultural. And uh, they can boil down to a, a lack of exposure to bright light. And, uh, you know, that's too much time indoors, too much time in front of screens. Uh, in a country like Australia, for example, where children spend a lot of time outside, you have very low rates of myopia. So uh, over the past 30 or 40 years, maybe uh, a doubling from 5 to 10% of your children are nearsighted. A uh, country like the United States, we're sort of in the middle. Our kids spend more time outside uh, than some Asian nations. And so our myopia rates are around a quarter to a third of children. But in countries uh, you know, that are in Asia, especially the highly urbanized areas where children spend very, very little time outside, uh, you have the highest rates of myopia. And again, you know, it's 80 to 90% of children in these urban centers uh, in Asia are nearsighted. Uh, so it definitely correlates the, the percentage of children who are nearsighted correlates to a society's emphasis of the importance of time outside. Yeah, okay. So, so it, sounds like, uh, it sounds like the problem will uh, be exacerbated in um, uh, other countries, uh, you know, the, the US and Australia, given sort of higher density housing and uh, perhaps the tendency of kids to uh, to play video games rather than uh, go outside. So it, it, sound, it sounds like it's, uh, it, it's a growing problem. It is. And it's, it's, you know, it's difficult to solve cultural problems like that. Uh, so if you look at the reasons why children are inside, um, you know, quality of the environment is a really big part of it, just the drive and need to academically succeed uh, is certainly a, a cultural uh, motivator of, of time inside. Uh, some schools in China are now experimenting with putting skylights in the schools just to get more light into the schools without mm, having okay. to compromise the educational experience. Uh, so this isn't going away. These are very difficult problems to deal with. And uh, so it's certainly a very high medical need uh, that uh, our lenses are being used for. And you know, nearsightedness, people often think that, you know, oh, it's it's just glasses, right? I'll, I'll just go to the, the optom and we'll get some glasses. And when they get worse next year, we'll just go back to the optom and, and we'll get more glasses. And, you know, it's not, if it were just the having to go back and get thicker and thicker glasses each year, that would probably not qualify as a high medical need. It's an inconvenience. Uh, there's some aesthetic um, reasons to, to, you know, not like that. But the bigger problem is the more nearsighted a person gets in their childhood or adolescence, the higher at risk they are for blindness uh, or other serious ocular problems throughout their entire lifetime. And so the, the goal in these children is not just to get them seen clearly, but actually provide a correction to their vision that, uh, you know, serves double duty. And the other duty is keeping those children's vision from getting worse over time. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so it sounds like you know, they're sort of in danger of becoming the 
the typical 40 something year old and uh and and, and so they've got uh both uh near and long sight uh degeneration in fact it sounds it sounds like we're all losing a bit of our eyesight uh, to to various degrees yeah and for somebody who's really nearsighted like there's degrees of nearsightedness so you can have really mild nearsightedness we would call that maybe a minus 1 or a minus 2 and minus 3 they start to get a little more severe uh and you start to get beyond minus 3 and that person is going to carry up to 14 times higher risk of something called a retinal detachment. And a retinal detachment, there's this uh, little structure on the back of your eye that collects the image and sends it down the optical nerve to the brain. And, you know, it's like a, it's like a little camera. And when that thing detaches from the back of the eye, uh, that is a blinding event. Uh, at least temporarily, sometimes permanently. Uh, it sounds very nasty, I've got to say. It's a terrible thing to happen. And people who are nearsighted uh, are at much higher risk of that happening. Uh, they're also at higher risk for cataracts and glaucoma, uh, all the things that we view as very serious events for the eye. Nearsighted people are at higher risk for them, and their level of risk correlates to how nearsighted they become. Uh, so it's very important not only to correct the vision in a child who is nearsighted, uh, you know, they need to be able to see clearly to uh, perform well in sports, perform well in academics. But ideally, you want to not only correct that vision, but stop it from getting worse. And uh, that is what our lenses have been shown to do and are used around the world to do. Okay, great. All right. So so you're trundling along, you're um, uh, generating revenue in, uh, in in several countries. The other thing you did recent, recently was you raised some money, uh, $6 million, uh, I think, in a placement and, and share purchase plan. Um, now, is it fair to say that cash was sort of pretty uh, pre- pretty much needed? You, you, you really sort of needed to go to the world? Yes. Yeah, so we're not quite a profitable company yet. We really started selling in earnest after our IPO in Australia in 2017. Uh, and just to give you a sense of, of revenue development over that time frame, uh, 2016, these are US dollars, was about 200000 for us in revenue in 2016 as we were just getting started. We IPO'd in 2017. That was a million dollar a year for us, just over a million. 2018, 3.3 million. 2019, we just reported 5.7 million. US dollars. So we have been growing in revenue, but we're not yet profitable. So we do continue uh, to use cash at this point. And so, yeah, raising money was pretty important for us, especially given the uncertainty around COVID, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, We want to make sure that the company is healthy and uh, as healthy as it can be and well positioned for what could be an extended downturn. Sure, sure. Okay, okay. And uh, do, you, do you have a uh, a timeline or sort of an aspirational target even uh, for sort of break even or, or, or profitability? It's very difficult at this point to know how deep the COVID-19 pandemic is going to go and how long it's going to last. Uh, and so we're not it's it's very difficult to forecast at this point, given the uncertainty that's in front of us, a time frame. We certainly are positioned for profitability at some point, given the fact that we do make good margins on our products. Uh, so our unit economics are quite good. Uh, it's the building of accounts and building sales that takes time that we have to do to break even. 
And uh, we've just undergone some changes at the company due to the COVID pandemic that will make that a little bit longer term. Uh, but certainly the unit economics suggests that we will get to break even at some point. Okay. You did have to, you, you had to cut some costs and, and, and let some people go. Yes. Yes, we did. I noticed um, a big arrival, probably, probably actually a much bigger rival, uh, an established company, um, Cooper Vision, launched a, a lens for myopia um, as well. But um, you as a company are quite happy about that. We actually are. Uh, so Cooper Vision has had a product called MySight out in the market uh, around a decade now, maybe a little bit more than a decade. So it's not that they launched a new product. What, what Cooper Vision did was they were able to get that product cleared into the United States as a myopia progression product, uh, which you know was very, very difficult to do. They were the first company to get the FDA to provide a clearance specifically for myopia progression control, not just the correction of myopia. And it comes with uh, quite a burdensome clinical program that they have to meet in order to keep the clearance. But what's good for us about that, and just it's good for patients, it's good for parents, it's good for doctors, is that Cooper Vision will, of course, invest quite a bit of money into something that this area of eye care really needs, which is education. And so practitioners and parents, um, one of the challenges for us is, you know, we were one of the only companies out there talking about the importance of treating the progression of myopia, not just correcting the nearsightedness itself. And we're a very small company. We have 20 sales reps or had 20 sales reps out in the field. Uh, there are maybe a thousand in the United States alone total uh, among all the, lung, the large companies. And so we were out there with a, you know, a very small voice, uh, very ardent and pounding as hard as we could, but still a small voice saying, we need to be addressing myopia progression control in children around the world, uh, especially in Asia where it's 80 to 90% of, of kids. You know, this, these are uh, epidemics in a sense. And not many practitioners or parents were aware of this need to treat the progression of myopia and not just the myopia itself. So having another large player out speaking, uh, you know, speaking about the importance of treating the progression of the myopia lifts, uh, we think is going to lift all boats. And it's not just Cooper Vision. Uh, Alcon, which is one of the large five players, when they IPO'd uh, quite recently, they spun out of their parent company, Novartis. They spoke about myopian children being one of their future pillars of growth. Uh, Cooper, you know, Cooper Vision, uh, with their clearance in the United States, Menacon, which is one of the large multinational contact lens companies, just did a deal with us uh, in which they will package our lenses into under their new pediatric myopia brand name called Bloom. Uh, all the large eye companies are either talking about this issue now or developing products for it. And we consider that very, very good for us because we're so much out in front of them. Uh, but the fact that they're putting money into talking about it, they're being very public about it. Uh, there's, you know, a lot of activity in a space now that two years ago didn't exist. Uh, so yeah, we're we're quite happy with the activity. Yeah, great. So the big boys are basically doing uh, your your marketing for you. Absolutely, and and right now in the United States, it's just Cooper Vision doing that marketing because uh, they have the product. 
And the, the rest of the companies are talking about it. Essilor, which is the largest company, eye care company in the world, uh, just formed a myopia working group. Um, you know, as far as we know, they don't have a product for, for sale, but they're talking about it. And that's all very good for us. Yeah, terrific. Terrific. Okay. Okay. All right. And, and look, finally, uh, uh, Stephen, you, you, you've got a doctorate in neurobiology and, a, and an MBA. Um, you're, you're also a recreational pilot and, uh, and, and a uh, avid uh, scuba diver. So I, I'm just wondering what these activities uh, sort of inform you or, or teach you about, about running a business. Oh, that's a that's a really interesting question. Um, you know, taking the the first one. Well, first of all, when when we talk about flying, so some people, you know, they find out I fly airplanes, right? And the first thing they say is, "Wow, that's you know, wow, you 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 must be like fantastically rich and you know, well, flying around in jets and stuff." And so I have, I have okay. to correct that right away and say, you know, look, that the airplane I fly is it's about the equivalent of a doghouse with a fan attached to it. Uh, you know, we're not talking a big jet here. Um, but even in a, in a really small airplane that just fits four people, um, there are some things that are very, you know, they align really well with running or being in a leadership position at a corporation. And, you know, the best way to describe it, you know, in an airplane, uh, you, there's an easy way to fly it in clear weather all the time. And then there's a more difficult way to fly it, which is, you know, in clear weather when you can, but also in poor weather in the clouds. And uh, that is called instrument flying. And an instrument flying requires, uh, first of all, a constant lifetime study uh, to be able to fly in bad weather. So no matter how long you do it, you still have to keep studying and keep practicing it. And probably the, you know, one of the most important skills in flying and weather in a small airplane or even a large airplane is the ability to focus on what is both important and urgent. Uh, and, you know, that's just a, a very core part of instrument and weather flying. So lots of things happening in the airplane. Uh, all of it important, but not all of it urgent. Uh, one has to very much be able to filter out the the extraneous noise, focus in on what's important for the moment, take care of that task, and then move on to the the next more important thing. And running a corporation is a lot like that. It's an incredibly complex machine. There are lots of important things happening, uh, not all of them urgent. And so what the two have in common is the necessity to focus very intently on what is important and urgent at the time and not get distracted from that, uh, from all the other things happening, and then move on to the things that uh, are important and have become urgent while you were working on that one thing or the things that are important or non-urgent. And I, I just really enjoy that aspect of both flying and in, uh, in a leadership position. I find it very, very, uh, it's therapeutic in a way uh, because it requires, both of them require such focus and uh, it's a meditation of sorts. Okay, great. Well, look, hopefully the, the weather forecast for, for visioneering is uh, some uh, clear skies and uh, 
not uh, too much turbulence. Yeah, clear skies and tailwinds. So that's what we hope for. <laughs> exactly. Well, Stephen, uh, thanks very much for, for sharing the company's vision with us, so to speak. <laughs> hopefully, uh, hopefully your shares will be um, flying high uh, again uh, very soon. Well, I appreciate that, Tim. I always enjoy the, the great questions, the intelligent questions and a conversation and look forward to speaking again. Thanks, Stephen. You're too kind. All right. You take care. Cheers.